Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers, so that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Beware of your friends. Do not trust anyone in your clan, for every one of them is a deceiver, and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Their tongue is, is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With their mouths, they all speak cordially to their neighbor. But in their hearts, they set traps for them. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I will weep and wail for the, for the mountains and take up a lament concerning the wilderness grasslands. They are desolate and untraveled, and the lowing of the cattle is not heard. The birds have all fled, and the animals are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt for jackals, and I will lay waste the town of Judah so that no one can live there. Who is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can, can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? The Lord said, It is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the Baals as their ancestors taught them. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will make this people eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. I will scatter them among the nations that neither they nor their ancestors have known, and I will pursue them with a sword until I have made an end of them. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider now. Call for the wailing woman to come. Send for the most skillful of them. Let them come quickly and wail over us till our eyes overflow with tears and water streams from our eyelids. The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How ruined are we? How great is our shame? We must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. Now, now, you women, hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Death has climbed in through our windows and has entered our fortresses. It has removed the children from the streets and the young men from the public squares. Say, this is what the Lord declares. Dead bodies will lie like dung on the open field, like cut corn behind the reaper with no one to gather them. This is what the Lord says. 
Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the riches boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all those who live in the wilderness in the distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Guy. Thank you all. Thank you for the reading. Thank you, Guy, particularly for making clear I didn't choose this passage. <laughs> it's not one I would naturally have chosen. It's not an easy passage, as we have just heard, but it is God's word. And I hope and trust it might become God's word to us as we reflect on it together this evening. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a, a God who speaks. We thank you that you spoke to your people through the prophet Jeremiah. You spoke as we've heard words that are hard and difficult words, but also words that could bring hope. And so, Lord, I pray now that as we reflect together on those words, you would take my frail words and speak through them, that by your Spirit you would speak into each of our hearts and that you would enable us to open our ears and not harden our hearts, but to receive and to obey your word spoken to us. For we ask it in the name of your word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Death has climbed in through our windows and has entered our fortresses. It has removed our children from the streets and the young men from the public squares. Dead bodies will lie like dung on the open field, like cut grain behind the reaper. Horrific words which, as we gather on Remembrance Sunday, remind us of the horrors of war. Horrors, I guess most of us have been blessed not to know directly in our lives, but horrors that as we know, are the daily life of people in numerous countries across the globe today. Not least in the region of the world where the prophet Jeremiah first spoke those words in the 6th and 7th century BC. Horrors that have scarred the lives of millions of men, women and children alive today. And as we reflect together on this stark and Shocking chapter, do keep it open in front of you. I want us to think first some more about the horrific realities that it describes. Then we'll turn to look at its honest reckoning of what has brought these horrific realities about. And then we're going to have to ask ourselves the, the sobering question of whether, even if we've mercifully avoided the horrific realities, any honest reckoning of our own way of life will conclude that how we are living risks leading us into them. And then finally, we'll look at the hopeful remedies to which Jeremiah points us. The prophet 
paints a picture full of horrific realities, or in some cases what he warns will soon become horrific realities, for God's chosen people. As we've seen, there is first the horror of war. Already in the opening verse, we hear of the slain of my people. And that may be metaphorical and not just literal, but there is no doubt that the violence, the butchery of war is hanging over those the prophet addresses. Indeed, he warns them that when it comes, it will in fact be God's judgment on them. Verse 16, I will pursue them with the sword until I have made an end of them. And then we have, we have those gruesome images with which I began. Words which paint such a vivid and contemporary picture. As we can think from what we've seen on our screens of war-torn countries. Children in war-torn countries no longer on the streets, but hiding from gunfire and bombs and missiles in apparently well-constructed strong buildings, only to find that death has climbed in through the windows. But war and the death it brings aren't the only horrific reality the prophet speaks of. That verse which speaks of God's people being pursued with the sword points to something else. Literally, it warns of the exile that's going to befall Judah as she is dragged off into Babylon. It speaks of what we still know so much of today. People on the move. Displaced peoples, migrants, refugees. I've just finished reading David Cameron's memoirs and was thrown back again to the horrors we witnessed just a few years ago within Europe. Horrors which continue apace in so much of our world. The trauma of, in the words of verse 16, people being scattered among nations that neither they nor their ancestors have known. Though spoken over 2,500 years ago, the prophet's words point us to a sad constant of human history. A sad combination of horrors that so often go hand in hand, war and the movement of people. As in the imagery of verse 11, cities become a heap of ruins. Towns are laid waste so no one can live there. In those situations, those who survive have to find new homes. In the words we hear reported in verse 19, we must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. As people flee war zones, they are scattered into other nations. And sadly, that scattering of people into those nations can itself lead, of course, to further conflict and war. And then thirdly, there's another highly relevant connection as well, one we might miss but could be a prophetic word for us today and in the decades ahead. Did you notice in verse 10 the lament over the non-human creation? I will weep and wail for the mountains and take up a lament concerning the wilderness grasslands. They are desolate and untraveled. The lowing of cattle is not heard. The birds have all fled. The animals have gone. The prophet mourns the devastation he sees not only on his people, his fellow humans, but on his environment, his planet, God's creation. Later in verse 12, he asks, Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? Here again we see Scripture's witness to one of the horrific realities we face today, the reality of ecological destruction, 
Some of it, of course, brought about by war or movement of peoples. But also the reality that in future the movement of people will often be to escape environmental disaster. And future wars are often likely to be fought in response to some of the consequences of environmental problems. A report last year warned of the serious likelihood of more water wars in coming decades as people fight over access to scarce natural water resources. Three horrific realities here in this chapter of Jeremiah. Three horrific realities which, despite all the various forms of human progress in the centuries since then, remain horrific and often interconnected realities for humanity millennia later. War, displaced peoples, and environmental destruction. And so, as we face the same horrific realities, we need to listen to the prophet's honest reckoning of what has led to this. He points to a range of underlying problems in God's people, problems which led then into the horrors that he describes, problems which we need to stop and ask about in our own lives, need to stop and ask about in our own church, need to stop and ask about in our own country and culture, not least at this time of national reflection during a general election campaign. As we look at the honest reckoning which Jeremiah offers in this chapter, four things stand out for me. First, and perhaps surprisingly, there is his repeated emphasis on the importance of truth-telling. It's often said, isn't it, that truth is the first casualty of war, but this suggests the problem goes deeper, that disregard for the truth is part of the problem in a society which predates the start of war. Truth is a casualty in a community long before the war starts. Straight off in verse 3 we are told, they make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. Then in verse 4 we hear of deceivers and slanderers. How, verses 5 and 6, no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. People live in the midst of deception. And that's why, verse 7, the Lord is going to refine them. And, just in case we still hadn't got the message, verse 8 repeats it. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. As we look at our various forms of communication, the internet, the media, as we listen to political campaigning over coming weeks, we need perhaps to undertake our own honest reckoning. Are we, as a society, perilously close to the rotten society Jeremiah describes here? And where, in all sorts of areas of our life, not least in relation to the environment, do we need to stop living in the midst of deception and start telling ourselves the truth? Secondly, although there is this focus on truth and false speech of various forms, this is, this is actually just the tip of the iceberg. The prophet is clear that the problem is even more widespread. Verse 3, they go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me. Verse 5, they weary themselves with sinning. And it's then all brought together in verse 13, in the answer the prophet gives there as to why God's people have suffered such horrors. It is, he says, 
because they have forsaken my law which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Disregard of God, disregard of God's good purposes and laws is what has led Judah into these horrific realities of war, displacement and environmental destruction. It's almost as if there is over time and in no simplistic cause and immediate effect way a moral law built into the grain of God's universe, into human communities, into human history. A persistent, determined disregard for how God wants us to live, particularly a disregard for truth in our relationships with one another and with God, is not good for us. It is, in fact, a recipe for disaster. Such a way of life leads ultimately not to our flourishing, but through God's providential ordering and God's judgments to our floundering. But thirdly, the problem isn't just wider than truth-telling, it's also deeper than simply not obeying the law. I wonder if you noticed the various references in the chapter to the heart. Even when, verse 8, they are not clearly lying and deceiving one another, their heart is in the wrong place. With their mouths they all speak cordially to their neighbours, but in their hearts they set traps for them. And verse 14, in answer to that question of verse 12, why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? Well, verse 14 gets literally to the heart of the problem in Jeremiah's honest reckoning of the reasons for their plight. They have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. As someone once said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The reason we still face the same horrific realities today, thousands of years later, the reason we too are so often guilty of lies and deception and deceit and various other sins, is that there is a deep-rooted human heart problem. This is a central concern of the prophet Jeremiah. Again and again he returns to it throughout his prophecies, throughout the book, if you read through it. As he says in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And it is, of course, what Jesus will return to in his teaching. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. We need radical heart surgery if we're to be able to change course, to turn away from patterns of life which lead to these horrific realities Jeremiah describes. Horrific realities which lead, in short, to death. And the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart because the heart has ceased to love God. And here we see the fourth and final level of Jeremiah's honest reckoning. It's there in verse 14. They haven't just followed the stubbornness of their hearts, they have followed their bowels. They have turned from God, the God who had entered into covenant with them and instead followed idols. Now here we may think, here at last we're in a slightly different world from that of Jeremiah. We don't have bowels or other idols. And yet when we get to the climax of his message, we begin to see we're not so easily off the hook. In verse 23, we see that the problem lies in what God's people are boasting in. 
Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. Three boasts, three idols, three features of life, which are very much part of our world. Wisdom here, of course, is not godly wisdom, but worldly wisdom, or what we might call knowledge, what one commentator suggests could be called technique or technological prowess. Strength speaks of power. And riches? Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? And if we stop and think about our experience of those three horrific realities of war, displaced people, destruction of the non-human creation, well, boasting in, giving our lives over to, worshipping those three things, what one modern translation calls exulting in our expertise, our might and our wealth, Well, that pattern of behavior, that form of boasting and exulting is exactly what so often leads societies today into those disasters. So Jeremiah offers us this fourfold diagnosis of the problems, a diagnosis which we need to stop and apply to our own lives, to our own church, to our own society. A diagnosis which perhaps can provide a guide for us as we engage in political debate and discernment over the coming weeks, as we seek an honest reckoning of where we are as a nation. Now, if we were to stop there, it would all be rather depressing, and Jeremiah can be rather depressing at times. Three horrific realities stemming from four serious problems which Jeremiah's honest reckoning reveals. But despite that reputation he has for negativity, Jeremiah doesn't leave us there. In response to those four problems, he offers hopeful remedies. Four responses, four remedies which he called God's people to follow then and calls us to embrace now. First, we need to face and tell the truth of our situation and weep and mourn and lament over it. We must face the horrific realities and acknowledge how we, by our actions, have created them. And so, as we heard right from the start, we are told we should be in tears. In tears like Jeremiah, or it seems at times in tears like God himself. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night. As we've seen, that same response is to be shown to the state of the creation. Verse 10, I will weep and wail for the mountains, take up a lament concerning the wilderness grasslands. When the people seem, through their hardness of heart, to be incapable of this, God calls the professionals in, those who in those societies were paid to mourn. Verse 17, call for the wailing women to come. Send for the most skillful of them. Let them come quickly and wail over us till our eyes overflow with tears and water streams from our eyelids. And this may be something we need to do. We may need to do for a long time. One generation needs to teach the next, in verse 20. Now you women, hear the word of the Lord. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Wailing, lamenting, Doesn't fit with a good stiff upper lip, doesn't fit with a love of joyful celebratory praise songs, but it fits 
with the Saviour who wept at Lazarus' tomb and who wept over Jerusalem. It fits with a spirit who groans as creation groans, waiting for its redemption. So, perhaps we need to find ways, personally, corporately, ways of doing exactly what Jeremiah calls for, teaching one another to lament. But secondly, you may have noticed I actually cut out the first command to those women in verse 20. Now you women... Hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of his mouth. Instead of, as they had been doing, disregarding God and God's laws, they and we need to open our ears to them, to listen, to hear, to really listen, to really hear what God has to say to us. We can't solve these problems on our own, out of our own hearts. We need a word from outside ourselves, a word from God to us. Earlier in verse 12, Jeremiah has asked, who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Now, and interestingly it is addressed to women, now we are called to be instructed, to return to the God who speaks, the God who speaks through scripture and by his spirit, to return and to listen, to open our ears the words of his mouth. But thirdly, the heart of the problem, remember, is the problem of the heart. What Jeremiah ends with in verse 26, even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. We therefore need not some outward rituals or ceremonies, not simply a keeping of God's commands. We need radical heart surgery, a circumcised heart. And as you read through the book of Jeremiah, this is what God himself promises to give to his people. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Or later, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And that promise has now been fulfilled. Because this is what we learn from Paul, Jesus gives us by the Spirit. As Paul writes in Romans, circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And then a few chapters later in chapter 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the third hopeful remedy then is one God offers us by his spirit. One he offers us each person here tonight. If they come to him acknowledging the depths of their need. And asking him for a new, circumcised, softened heart. And the key to all that? Well it's summed up in verse 24. The alternative, the remedy to the problem of boasting in those three idols of expertise, power and wealth... But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, knowing God, the God who is characterized by three qualities in contrast to those three idols. The prophet says, let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness Justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I 
delight, declares the Lord. Knowing the kindness, the justice, and the righteousness of God. Behind that are three great Hebrew words repeatedly used of God's character and God's actions in the Old Testament. The kindness or faithful covenantal love of Hesed. The justice of Mishpat, the righteousness of Tzedek. Three great characteristics of Israel's God. Great characteristics we see fulfilled and embodied in Jesus himself. The one who, when we come to know him by putting our trust in him, pours out his spirit into our otherwise hard, uncircumcised hearts. The one who speaks to us by that spirit and by his word. The one who teaches us to weep with him over his world. On Remembrance Sunday, we remember and give thanks for those who have given their lives in war, mourn for our sins and folly that so often leads us into war, and commit ourselves afresh to being people working for peace. As we do so, we need also to stop and reflect on why we have to keep doing this, why our world is always somewhere at war, why our peace is always so fragile and temporary. Jeremiah here speaks, I believe, a relevant and still prophetic word. War is one of a number of often interrelated horrific realities in Jeremiah's world and in ours. Horrific realities which come about because of how we live our lives and structure our societies. And so learning from Jeremiah, we need to undertake an honest reckoning. To look honestly at our rejection of truth and of God and his ways. To confess that the problem lies deep, deep in each of our hearts and their disordered loves and desires and boasts. And to do this not in despair, other than despair in ourselves, but to do it in hope. Hope because God himself has provided the remedies. The God who has himself come and borne his judgment on our rebellious world in Jesus and his cross. And so through Jesus and by the Spirit... We can turn away from those idols of expertise and power and wealth and come instead to know and boast in the true God. To know, to really know his kindness, his justice, his righteousness. We can receive from him the gift of a new circumcised heart. We can hear him speak to us and in response with those new soft rather than hardened hearts. We can then bring his broken world and all its horrific realities before him and work to change it, empowered by his spirit, with tears and with lamenting. Amen.